All right, looks like we're live. Uh, welcome to another edition of Tech Chat Tuesday, uh, and this one is for January 31st, 2023. My name is Ken Rempel, and with me today uh, is Drew DeCarm. Hi, Drew. Hey, Ken, what's up? Drew is an expert in front-end technologies uh, for us at Chariot, does a whole lot of consulting for us in things like single-page applications, server-generated apps, and, and a bunch more. Um, and so we brought him on today because we're going to talk about some things that he's been looking at this year uh, that have kind of surfaced that are technologies he's watching and paying attention to and things he's kind of keeping his eye on for, for UI and UX development, things like that. Um, we're going to start off, as we usually do, talking about some of the content that we have. Uh, so if you go to chariotsolutions.com and you go to our resources menu, uh, there's our blogs, uh, or you just hit chariotsolutions.com slash blog. We have a couple of new articles um, since the beginning of the year. I've already mentioned the uh, Innovation Center article by Tracy Wilson-Rossman last week. Uh, we started out with um, three new posts, and, and two of them by Keith Gregory, uh, who does a lot of our AWS and cloud technology consulting. He's one of our experts there. Um, one of them is about, instead of using uh, JSON and data lakes, uh, taking a look at uh, different uh, content types instead of uh, JSON, such as Avro or, um, you know, what is it on here? Uh, Parquet, Orc, Avro. Um, and so he talks about like why it would make more sense to use more of a structured type than JSON itself. So that's a good reader if you're looking into like how you're dealing with data formats and transferring data back and forth uh, for moving data in a data engineering setting or what have you. Um, you can take a look at that blog article for some uh, background. And then he had a follow-up article uh, as he recommended Avro as one of the better solutions uh, for a lot of cases um, and he talks about a couple of different ways to approach uh, building Avro uh, schemas. So either through Java, uh, Python, uh, and the Python ones are Apache Avro and Fast Avro. So that gives you some code samples to kind of get started and kick the tires. And then Tracy uh, Wilson-Rossman, again, our, our chief marketing officer, and she also runs Journal My Health, uh, a true MVP, uh, minimum viable product, enables agility in product development. And so this is a write-up on, you know, what 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 the benefits are. Oops, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I never get a call. Let me put on my do not disturb. Um, what the benefits are of, of using an MVP to help kind of suss out what you're looking for uh, in a product. All right. Um, let me just turn on do not disturb. Okay. Love those articles from, from Keith. Yeah, they're very good. Um, Sometimes they just go completely over my head. <laughs> <laughs> Mine too. He, he's been really helpful to me. I've been working on this uh, ECS and EKS template for us uh, and kind of like some internal work. And uh, every time I ask him questions, he's like the AWS guru. Um, every little weird thing you can't find, he's like, look over here. I'm like, oh, Keith. Yeah. He, I, I clone your brain. Really you, you you never assume that he's not going to have an answer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, good man. Uh, all right, so a couple things then. Uh, Philly ETE is coming up, Philly Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise. And we have one of our speakers for Philly Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise here today. Drew, uh, what's your talk about? So, I'm going to be talking about parallelization in the uh, in the browser. Um, so, I'm, I'm specifically going to... I guess in a more informal sense, I'm going to throw as much as I possibly can at the browser and hope it doesn't crash. Um, so I think there's just a, 
there's a good amount of misunderstanding or misuse, I think, in just asynchronous processing for a lot of the things that happen on the main thread. Uh, so I kind of want to explore it, talk about the history, talk about more of just an awareness type deal. Uh, but the overall concept is like we're we're working our browser way too hard. We need to spin up some more threads to do some processing intensive tasks that somehow need to be, be on the client. So, yeah, that event loop gets completely myrtleized, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. And then with all of the so I, I, I was just watching a presentation by Michael Westrate, who's of Immer fame mm -hmm. and um, MobX. Oh, yeah. And I was watching a talk on him and he pulled up the performance monitor in the browser. I was like, what is this like crazy new tool? Oh, yeah. Stuff? Um, it's like a running, it's a running like heap size and it like helps basically visualize different, how much CPU load you, load you have. I mean, there's so many browser tools out there right now that can really, mm -hmm. can really help us out. So yeah, that's what we're talking about. Excited. Cool. Awesome. It's gonna be fun. And we have lots of other speakers. Uh, you know, we're, we're kind of getting down to the wire here. We've got almost all of our speakers, uh, acquired and in the process of being put on the site. So within the next, I'd say, three or four weeks, we should have everybody sewn up. But just some great speakers, great talks. Um, we've got like a, a, a talk by Deshaun Carter from Spring, uh, from VMware Tanzu, uh, talking about, uh, you know, active-active uh, multi-cloud approaches and things like that, which should be really interesting. And he's using Spring Boot as his uh, technology for that with Data Redis and Azure Front Door. Um, as just a, a pattern for that one, but that'll be very interesting. Uh, we've got uh, talks by Richard Feldman. Uh, he created the the Rock programming language, and he's been uh, on the show or, or on the uh, the uh, conference multiple times. Uh, and in this one, he focuses on calling functions across languages. Um, and so that's an interesting talk as well. If you're like into language embedding or whatever, uh, and you know you're thinking of maybe embedding, let's say Python inside of something, uh, it'd be good to check this out. He has some thoughts on that. So, um, you know, I think Rock is one of the ones he looks at is like how he dealt with embedding Rock in other systems uh, as, as, a, as a case study. So I think he's, that's what that he's is. He's such a compelling speaker. Oh, he's great. A yeah, lot he's of fun fantastic. to watch. Yeah, truly. Um, and so just you can look at all these. They're really, really good. So we are still an early bird. Uh, if you register now, you save some money. Uh, and if you just go to the phillyemergingtech.com, you can then follow the link to register uh, and right now the early bird is 425. It'll go up in a week or two. So get your tickets now, save a little money. It's in person this year, which is great. Uh, we're going to be back in person live uh, first time since the pandemic. We're all thrilled about that one. Uh, and we'll be at the university science center uh, on market street in Philadelphia. We also have a live streaming option for people who can't physically make it. So it'll be our first kind of simulcast conference. Um, as opposed to all recorded, uh, which is what we usually done. So we're really looking forward to doing that. All right, cool. And then if you want to see, if you're curious about uh, ETE and you want to see our videos uh, from prior years, you can hit any of our playlists for individual years. We also have like a super playlist of everything uh, that we have online from going back, I think, a decade at least. Um, and those are just some of the playlists we have. We also have our Tech Chat Tuesdays here uh, as well. Uh, along with a bunch of other kind of shows that we've done in the past. So you want to see the kind of stuff we produce, check it out on youtube.com slash chariot solutions and look at our playlists. I highly recommend last year's keynote, Corey, Corey Doctorow. Uh, Ceasing the means of computation. Um, yes. I, I had to watch that, I think three times before I fully understood or mm -hmm. I just like <laughs> follow all of his, all of his, uh, his like train of train of thought. It was, it was really incredible yeah he's like a tech philosopher you know yeah yeah it, it got pretty heady there for a little bit so it was, <laughs> it was fun 
it's not what you typically think about when you hear like a tech presentation. Yeah, for sure. Cool. All right. So I have just a couple of things and this kind of tees up and gets us warmed up for, for some stuff that Drew's going to cover here. So I just have a couple of uh, blog articles I paid attention to uh, in the last week. Um, this one's interesting. Ted Neward, I believe this is uh, Neward associates um, who's a pretty big name out there in like conferences and such and, and technical uh, writing, technical uh, focus articles. Um, you want modules, not microservices. And this is some of the stuff that I think is on a lot of people's minds as they're starting to develop uh, things in the cloud more and more, uh, or even just distributed computing more and more. Um, you know, you, you're told over and over again, the monolith is the problem. And certainly a very large monolithic slab of code that runs everything has its issues, right? Um, and over time it gets bloated and slower and difficult to debug and the people who worked on it are gone. So I, I get the whole don't do everything as, as, as uh, monoliths uh, think about breaking them up. But the other end of the pendulum is, of course, microservices. So deploy a function, you know, deploy functions for each various features that you have. And that function is deployed as a microservice with a little bit of supporting code. Uh, and then you wire a whole bunch of microservices together. Ted's perspective on this is that, uh, you know, you know, he first tees up what like the major reasons are for microservices being important. Um, you know, let's see, simplify cross-team coordination uh, because you have nice little tiny things talking to each other, streaming events, um, rapid growth because uh, you've got a modular architecture and uh, very quick deployments, um, et cetera. But uh, some of the issues are that you start tangling a whole bunch of things together uh, and you've got a whole bunch of teams working on a whole bunch of different small things, uh, each of which is very specialized in what it does. So a um, couple of the things, uh, is, you know, that we find is that people are starting to bulk things back together into smaller, not full monoliths, but smaller uh, modules again, and focusing on deploying modules, which have multiple features that are all related uh, in a single deployment, which makes it easier for them to work on their own, makes it easier to test them as that unit. They can share some code, the foundational code that they need, um, and you can have a little bit more expertise. So uh, in any given particular module across multiple developers. So this is him kind of teeing that up in an article. You can check that out. It's at blogs.tedneward, I'm sorry, .newardassociates.com. We'll have a link in the show notes. So that's a kind of an interesting one here. Got a lot um, of the same parallels that we, we typically use in the front end for uh, like module-based workspaces. Yep. So we, we tend to have like their own development scripts inside them. I mean, they're often... They're often abstracted away from like your general application, but you can think of them like component libraries or other small libraries that do a certain a certain thing. And those can be, you know, deployed on their own too. They can be used as sort of separate bolt-ons to the application or used in like parallel to the application. So right. Nice. Yeah. It's in the way. Yep. And so then you know, you can consider if you've got like a module for let's say user management uh, on the front end with its chunks of components that are being used for that feature and all the service calls and the APIs and such, then you can do the same thing as a, as a service that's deployed with the number of features on it as more of a module as opposed to a microservice. So that's kind of what he's talking about there. Yeah, there's there's been, I mean, I've seen this architecture a little bit more, especially on the front end, Yeah, uh, where there's, let's say that you're developing something that has like an API in it. A lot of a lot of teams now will create some just a module that is like a JS client to be able to interface that API either through like TypeScript. Mm -hmm. um, uh, let's see. I think there's people who don't really use authentication as a service. So like 
Okta or um, or Auth0, they tend to make their their user module something that you can deploy on your own. You can deploy a different you know authentication server. So like that that's all like I mean, all that somehow needs like either programmatic interaction or or actual client user interaction. So again, it can be deployed to multiple places. I like this. Yeah, because I'm biased. I've been working for like this for a while. So <laughs> I mean, it's it's just good design. You know, yeah. good good component design and architectural design. Okay, then cutting a little closer to the front end, and at least to, to JavaScript anyway, is TypeScript. So TypeScript 5.0 seems to be a pretty big release. Um, there's a beta right now of that. Um, and so I'm just going to scroll to the sample like TypeScript 5 features. But uh, Drew, have you taken a little bit of a look at this? Have I have not. This is the first news I've been hearing of TypeScript 5. But okay. I'm, on the, I'm on the bleeding edge. I, I think that the more TypeScript, the better. So... I, I download it immediately, and then I look at the docs afterwards. So, I'm yep. always, I'm always is. I, I think there's just so much value in TypeScript. You're never going to hear me not not use it. You're never going to hate it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's such like a holy war whether you should use TypeScript or not. But oh yeah, I find that there's there's so much there's so many benefits to it. Don't you find less and less people fighting it? I I find that like if you've done any of it, I mean, yes. I'll say the one thing about TypeScript that sometimes makes it difficult is sometimes you're wrestling with some type math, right? Yeah. Or you've got some really weird interfaces aren't really like sussed out well enough for you to understand it. Um, that you're digging around Googling for like the right type, <laughs> right? side because even the IDE can't figure it out. Yeah. So there's a little of that. It's nothing like Scala, but it, it is confusing a little bit sometimes, but it saves you a lot in the end. And it's, it's you know, it still gives you ECMAScript compatible code because it has to run inside the the uh, javascript runtime but it adds that extra level of type safety and you know good component you know good design of uh of your objects oh, dude, uh, I, I love it like i mean it, it reduces my unit tests i think a good unit test yeah that's true i mean it, it's just there's so many things that you can do out of the box with it that reduce the overall like time to development or time to getting your code out it, it's just it's like i'm not even going to debate the benefits of it but I, I love it i think it's great Point counterpoint. <laughs> I hate it. We, we, can spend, we can sit here all day and talk about this. <laughs> so a couple of cool things though. So they're they're implementing decorators. Now you you have something you're going to talk about the TC39 committee in a minute, which sounds like a UFO uh, project, but it's actually <laughs> the committee that determines what goes into JavaScript. Um, and decorators are coming out for that. But uh, so in the beta, because they closely align with where the committee goes with their standards. Uh, is a decorator feature. And the decorators, you can think of if you're a Java person, is like annotations um, as one way of doing decorators. It's basically you, you kind of annotate your code with features. And so they go into an example here where they want to like have um, a, let's see here, a logged method. Ultimately, just going to the example itself rather than trying to understand all the code here. But there's a decorator that says this method will be wrapped with logging or what have you, or at least it's noted as a log method, whatever they're doing as a sample. And so you've got these annotations, and those annotations are built by setting up functions that then work with um, and rewrite the code that was in the original method, right? So you, you basically, your repli replacement method would do a console log, do the original method call of whatever the arguments are, and then do a closing call and then leave. So this is kind of like advice or AOP in the Java world. Annotations are a way of adding functionality around instead of before, after your functions, which is kind of cool. I believe, though, if I'm not wrong. Their docs are super conversational. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Do you know? Um, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure decorators have to use with classes, but I'm not 100 percent sure about that. I don't know, man. Like, it, so what? I you're you're just seeing this for the first time, so this is not a quiz. Yeah. <laughs> well, not really. I mean, they were they were kind of popularized when Angular came out. Or yeah, it came out uh, for sure. And they were like kind of the first ones to jump on it. But at that point, there was kind of two distinct methods about going to use decorators. Mm -hmm. The governing body hadn't really um, hadn't really figured out what they wanted to do for it. Yep. So it's like Angular was implementing something before it was actually real. I think they were just taking this big old bet. Um, so uh, now that it's starting to level out now, I think there is some consensus around it. So, yeah, they, I mean, TypeScript is usually there. So I know for a fact they only implement things that are going to be approved. They're not going to like implement any stage two or stage one proposals, which I'll talk about later. Yeah, yeah. We'll hold off on that. Yeah. I think it's pretty funny that uh, like <laughs> we're just getting to it now. The the other the other person, I forget his name, uh, who, who proposed another version of this with the TC39 community um, – and it comes to me right after we're done talking to this whole podcast, I'm sure. But he was recommending like a metadata approach. So you would add a metadata property to your objects and you would put your quote unquote um, decorators inside of that. And those were the two competing modes when Angular 2 came out. And then, right, they took the bet. Nishiko Havery took the bet that there was going to be annotations like this. Very interesting that they ended up being this, this particular one. So. And all the decorators are typed and so on. So you can really kind of like narrow these down. I got a photo of this, man. Yeah, it's good stuff. Whoops. And then I lost it. There we go. Um, decorators are one thing. We've got, um, this is interesting. You know, enums uh, normally are numbers, right? In JavaScript, they just turn into like ordinal numbers. Uh, in TypeScript, you can have enums that are unions. Now every enum is a union. So the idea behind that is you can do like subsets of types like this. Right, you couldn't do that with standard enums that didn't know what to do with them. But if you make a union enum, then you can make like a subset of all the colors, which are primary colors. And why am I pointing at the screen while you're looking at me? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the point being, you got this, you know, type primary you color. Doing, <laughs> you know what you were doing. See, see. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so um, now you basically have this ability to uh, kind of use a subset of types of an enum, uh, which is kind of cool. That's but, crazy. Yep. So uh, there's another way that you can, that they released in like 4.8, mm -hmm. where you can type your own a union out. So you could iterate through keys of a interface or a type. Oh, and wow. then you can interpolate those to create like one big union. So there's a specific methodology I did in creating some like type safe, type safe design utilities. Mm -hmm. You have a couple declared uh, colors like primary, secondary, whatever. You can loop through those keys and then you can take all of their descending keys as like uh, primary bold, primary text, primary, all mm -hmm. that. You can create this long union that you can type the parameters of the function with. And like that's it's like a it's a very expressive way of just being able to say, all right, I want this specific color. But this is this is crazy. Enums have always been kind of like this weird thing that I never really use too much. And they know. Right. And like you can't really share them. Like you need to actually like build you because they're not necessarily a JavaScript. Uh, it's just it's just a regular like string, right? You know? yeah. So it's, it's it's interesting to see like some more progress on this. But this is a very interesting contrived example that they put up here. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of things you want you would think about enuming. Sometimes they get driven by data, which kills the enum concept at all. Yeah, yeah. you know. <laughs> 
So, but for, you know, building APIs that are reusable with some, you know, options and features, uh, for sure, this is interesting. And they have like a whole, uh, the change uh, on GitHub that did the implementation, they said to take a look at uh, as they're kind of putting together documentation. There's a bunch of flags around module resolution. So like now there's like this concept of module resolution uh, property, module resolution bundler, something about like node-based bundling. Um, I don't know anything about this stuff, but I'm sure if you flip through this, you might recognize some things that could maybe simplify your builds. Because I know you were dealing with like um, no JS module resolution versus common JS module resolution in some of your package builds. So maybe this helps with that. It'd be interesting to see. I, I'd have to check it out. I don't, I mean, who knows if you, use, if you set, if you use everything with node next or node, um, I forget what the next one is like node future or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, everything has to be appended with a dot JS. Yes. So there's no concept of like these, um, barrel files at the bottom of your, it, it's, I don't know, man. <laughs> I know. I need, I need like four hours to go through all this stuff. <laughs> What's really funny is like this stuff always changes every year. I look at it and go, and it's still complex and how? So I don't know. You know, you have to say. There is, like is something they said about this, though. There was something about export type star. Mm -hmm. So now you can do stuff like this, which I'm looking at for the first time. When type three, TypeScript three introduced typing imports. The new syntax was not allowed an export star for module or export star as NS for module. So now you can say export type star as blah from blah. So yeah, you'd have to extract the type out. If you wanted to export the type out of any file, you'd have to actually, you'd have to import uh, the type. Exactly. Yeah. You have to individually export the type. And now I guess it looks like you can, you can use a, um, a wild card or just like a, I don't even know what they call it. Like an all iterate or an all thing. An yeah. All thing. I don't know. So it basically, it's it would simplify those if you were setting that kind of stuff yeah, up. Yeah, know, yeah, yeah. A, a lot of times, you maybe you have like a type file, or maybe you have like some types that are co-located with a feature. Right. You to, unless you're unless you want to just export all of them, what you typically do in barrel files, if you mm -hmm. wanted to only import a few functions and then export like a type, you'd have to do that manually. Yep. Yep. So or manually, just like very, uh, I don't know. The syntax is a lot more terse. So, I mean, that's a smattering of them. They've done something really interesting here. So, like, if you're doing code completion with a code completion engine, um, if you're doing, like, some sort of a switch against the Nanum, the code completion will scaffold out all the Enum elements for you, which is kind of cool. What? So do that. Wait, is there a video there? Yeah, watch. Ready? Woo! We're going to play. Case. Check it. How cool is that? See that that's what I needed. I'm I'm used to writing like never exhaustive check guards at the end right. of these things here. Mm -hmm. And I know there is a TypeScript feature that will actually blow up if you don't if you don't consider all of the different options that are on that. Right, right, right. Uh, it's a compiler thing. flag, isn't it? Yeah. I've been using I've been using switch statements for like discriminated union type checking for a lot of like really complex state on the front end. And it's it's been incredible because it tells me exactly where I'm making mistakes. Nice. I'll nice. be them like I'll be at small mistakes, but mm. I do make them every once in a while. If you were if you were chatbot or chat GPT, you'd make no mistakes, but it would be mad lib, so it'd be useless. I'm actually just talking about GPT. I wanna I wanna get into that. I really do too, actually. It's been such a debate. Uh, not thrilled about it. So uh, speed memory and package size optimization. So apparently they've sped up compared to TypeScript 4.9, build times a little faster, startup times a little faster, etc. Um, and the package size, look at the TypeScript package size. It's down fifty-eight percent of what it was in 4.9. Wow. 
That's nice too. So anyway, cool stuff. Check out the beta. I'm sure it'll be live within a couple months uh, beyond beta form. And we'll all start getting in our, our frameworks and platforms we're using after that. It's good to know about that. Okay, so I'm going to throw to you now because we're going to talk about stuff that you've been checking out. So I'm going to stop my screen. And I just present, right? Yep. And you can pick the screen you want or the window you want or whatever you want to do. Um, I think it's this one. I believe it's this one. Yes. Okay. Can you see it? Yeah, you might want to make the font a little bit bigger, but yeah. Um, there you go. All right. So I it's this I want to first start out with I think that there is a lot of like nebulous understanding of how things actually go into two of my most loved languages here. So CSS and JavaScript. Mm-hmm. I mean, we hear about all like the node next or, you know, we, a lot of that stuff is pretty, is pretty much well-documented, but I always thought that CSS for some reason was this sort of like nebulous concept. Like how does it, how do these new CSS features get created? Like, are we still on CSS three? Like, is it, is that still something that we use? Like, or is it HTML five? Like how are these standards created? So what I kind of wanted to talk about a little bit is just what goes into each of these specifications. Um, Cause I don't really think a lot of it is, is good knowledge. So I told you I'd get into chat TPT. <laughs> and I was like, okay, where do I start with this? Cause I, I have a general idea of how everything works but I don't necessarily know, you know, all the ins and outs. So I go on, I Google, I'm like, okay, Google, uh, you know, what, what's the process for adding a proposal into the jet into the CSS spec. And I'm getting a lot of, I get a lot of like personal blogs. Like I get a lot of like different, differing articles that don't really have it. Um, I'm talking about like, I want, I want to be able to get to like the root core of it. Right. Cause you can subscribe to blog articles. You can subscribe to notifications, but like, where, where is this gut like mysterious, you know, governing body that exists in the ether that comes up with all these like different specifications. Right. I had no success. Going, I had no success going on Google. Um, so I was like, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to use my new favorite tool. I'm going to use ChatGPT. So I went on ChatGPT and I typed in how to, like, what are the, <laughs> I'm sure I have it up right now. What did I say? <laughs> I said, uh, what's the process for adding new features into the CSS specification? And what it shows you is what it spit out right here. Um, and I thought this was spot on. Like, this is exactly how it works. What, what you're talking about this right here in front right of CSS? Here, right here. This this right here oh. is what ChatGPT did. So okay. it's it's interesting because there's a lot of the I have a lot of like question-based answer solutions that I usually like go to Google. But for some reason recently I've been really going to Chappy Chat GPT because I don't have to click on anything. Like I get a very concise description. Um, I mean again, I would like more sources. So I actually followed it up and I said, all right. Where can I find these proposals on the internet? That's exactly what I said right here. And then, wow, bit of text. Check it out. So, I mean, I'm I'm not going to claim that this was me. I do have a lot of the knowledge here, but this I thought was a very concise write up of exactly what to do. But regardless of ChatGPT, you know, if you like it, you don't like it. But I think you know we're going to have to adapt and evolve with it. So I'm actually been using it a lot. Well, you know, just to break in here, I think actually that's a good use of it, right? So you're asking it to tell you something. And what you have to do normally with the browser is go to all these primary sources, dig into their 
the right part of their pages to find that one chunk of content. And it's already done all the AI to put together the categorization of what things are. So when you ask, it knows, you know, it, it, it can go through its tree of information to say, this is exactly what you want. So I can totally see that as a good use of it for sure. It's, it's been nice. It's been really nice. I mean, we just, we just went to the Poconos with some friends um, and uh, my friend's wife is a dentist. Um, and she looked, she used ChatGPT. She had this new implant that came out and she went to ChatGPT after I told her about it. And she just, I described this implant and she got a pretty concise write up on, you know, what this implant is, does and like how different it is from like, it, 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 it is, it's scary. It's scary how good this, this tool is. So, um, you know, use it the way that you want. Don't use it the way that you want, but I, I find it to be very, it, it's very time, time saving. Okay. So, so, so given that you've got some, some steps here, right? Yeah. So uh, first is most with everything is a proposal, right? Someone says, Hey, I want to build this feature out, right? This is something that I think CSS absolutely needs. Um, so what they do is, you know, this, this proposal is usually either by a browser or some sort of like other working group. And they basically, they say, Hey, you know, Google Chrome thinks that we want to be able to add this to the CSS spec. Um, the next is discussion. Uh, so basically, there's this big consortium, this body. So that's the CSS. I'm sorry, the uh, W3 consortium right here. So let's see if I can go to it. Uh, and this is the WC3 consortium. So this is the World Wide Web consortium. And then they have these participating members that go in and they say, hey, um, you know, I'm going to review this proposal. Right. And typically, the proposals come out of the out of the spec, not necessarily like they come out of the group, not necessarily out of like from the ether, a lot different than what JavaScript is. Um, so, you know, we have people from Adobe. There's a lot of Google in here, a lot of Microsoft. Um, I did see, see, I did see Mozilla, you know, some of the, some of the usual suspects is what you normally see here, but there's a couple people from Apple, so on and so forth. Right. So there are these people, these are, this is the governing body. It's what, are, what did it say at the top here? hundred and something members, 147 participates. Uh, including 14 invited experts, right? So these are the top dogs. This is the the overall governing body of CSS. So, um, and then basically what they do is they have this big discussion and they talk about how, you know, is this something that's viable to the specification? Um, to the overall specification, they collect their feedback and then they make ch changes, right? So uh, pretty much any proposal, right? You come up with an idea, you present it to the governing body and then they write the specification on it. So they'll refine it um, and then, once they refine that, they'll actually go into implementing it. So, a lot of what you a lot of what you see is either sponsorship by like one browser group, so like Chrome or Mozilla. Typically, you know what we have is the W. Sorry, can I use? So this is like an indispensable tool for anyone who's using uh, front end, and this is actually integrated into the MDN docs. Uh, but this tool right here, yeah, um, can I use? Yeah, this is yeah, good. Yeah. They like can I use Grit, right? So CSS Grid is a feature, and they have this stuff that aligns to the overall specification as well. Right. So the the thing about this is that depending upon the sponsorship of each browser, like each browser group, they'll say, all right, this is something that I think people who use Mozilla, Firefox, actually need. They'll put it behind feature flags. So Chrome is experimental, um, all these things that need to be manually uh, manually entered. And a lot of times you see those updates happen through like, your browser. So if it says Google Chrome needs an update, it's mm -hmm. like the next iterative update that implements either like experimental flag features or, um, 
you know, actually enabling features that have been widely regarded as like sort of the next step in, in the governing body, right? So then you have, um, you have all kinds of information right here, um, different tests when it was released. Um, so here you can basically see that grid, the level one specification is all supported across all your major browsers and they group your major browsers, i.e. obviously is that no one cares about IE. It's just... <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't care. I mean, is it even relevant at all anymore? I thought. Oh, it was really? Dead. I mean, edges, I just, you know, that's a WebKit based browser, so it's, it's yeah, hard, that's bro. what took over. Yeah. Yeah, WebKit. Um, yeah. Subgrid. I mean, this is important, right? So the subgrid mm -hmm. is a specified. It's a specification that is something that's relatively widely accepted. But to that point, it doesn't really matter whether it's been accepted into the. Um, into the overall specification, it matters when browser implementation has it, right? So recently in I think 2000 or 2022 in November, um, the dialogue element and along with the CSS, like the backdrop pseudo element was actually just widely accepted into all the browsers. Mm. So it was still part of the specification, but with HTML, but it really only matters is like, what browser are you using? Can I use it in this browser? So that's why this, that's why this tool right here is like, is super, super helpful. Um, so then getting back question for you. Do you find that like when, when browser, uh, when browsers implement the feature, they generally implement the feature as is in the spec or do they riff on it? So it, it really depends. I mean, it's mm -hmm. up to the interpretation of the browser group, right? So there, are, I mean, if you see the reason cross browser testing exists is because they have different, they have different um, prefixes. Yeah. Uh, it's all really up to like the implementing group. So the specification is more of like a standard way of like what should happen. And then it's up to the way that they implement it. Right. It's a so roadmap like, that yeah, hopefully people follow. Yeah. So like for the, for, for some reason, the Flexbox specification that operates a little bit differently with over scroll, overflowing scrollable containers than Firefox versus, versus Chrome. And Interesting. Some, and sometimes, like this is kind of a widely known, that's not bug, but it's just a difference. You have to put a minimum height on a scrolling, uh, a maximum height of, no, a minimum height of zero to make it like the height explicit because that's how the render, the browser engine is sort of interpreting the specification, right? Oh, okay. So, I mean, CSS is this, this really amazing language, but there's also one more level of sort of whisper down the lane that happens once there's a specification and then how is it implemented inside of the browser, right? Right. So then it's standardization, they'll work to sort of refine the spec and then it's finalization. So uh, it's a slow moving process. It, it takes a while. Um, some of the things that were just released recently that I really like is container queries. Um, and then like, it's a, it's a new one. Container queries. Firefox hasn't implemented it yet, right? <laughs> so, yeah. and then things like the uh, has. So container queries are, um, container queries are media queries that respond mm -hmm. to the overall size of its container. So let's say that you have some sort of containing article element on the page that you know is 300 pixels wide. Based upon if the, if that article element gets to be 200 pixels wide, you can set a container media query in there to respond to that 200, that 100 uh, pixels of difference to do something only inside of that container, not necessarily inside of the overall browser. Okay. So those, they're extremely powerful. Um, you know, let, let the patterns emerge on it for sure. But yeah. something like has too, like there's a, there's always, you know, CSS is cascading style sheets. So all, all things cascade down. So children don't really have a concept of parents. 
but the has operator allows you to see whether if, let's say that you have an input that's checked inside of a general container so you could like div has input or input with an attribute of checked and then you could style that div you could style that parent based upon like the state of another child element okay. that's very powerful but browsers don't browsers don't all have it right so mm -hmm. what you need to do is polyfill a lot of this stuff so there's new CSS features being released all the time, but it's really up to the browsers when they implement it and how they implement it. And then you're going back to the wonderful, the wonderful world of polyfills. So CSS polyfills are kind of like this new concept, but um, just because these features are being added and whether, you know, I don't know the whole process for how these things get integrated, um, but pretty much if, if you want to like snap the line at the browsers that are going to use something that are, you know, way up to way up to stuff, you're going to see things like, uh, I don't know, Chrome. Chrome's pretty much on top of everything. So that is CSS specs. So, and then concordantly on that other side, you have JavaScript, right? So JavaScript has a governing body. They're called the TC39. Um, and then they also have a standard way of going about adding new features. They have a proposal which can be initiated by anybody online. So anybody can go into the TC39, which is right here. This is their GitHub. And here um, they have the ability to submit different types of proposals, right? So you have four stages of proposals. Here's the process. Um, stage zero through four. If you ever worked with anything that has related to Babel back in the day, yep. I'm sure you had to add plugins like stage one proposal, stage two proposal, stage three proposals. So this was a process that JavaScript had implemented far beyond uh, transpilers like Babel came to popularity. So they were saying, all right, I want to be able to use, or I want to be able to take my new modern JavaScript. I want to be able to use proposals that are in stage, you know, given your number, zero to three. And then I want to be able to transpile those into something that the browser is going to understand, which is much more um, like before, before modules were implemented in browsers. So stage zero is just like, this is brand new. Like, hey, this would be a great idea. Stage one was saying that, hey, this actually might be a good idea. We have a champion for it. Someone's going to sponsor this and like move it through who's part of the TC39 uh, specification, specification committee. And stage two was kind of like, hey, this is something that we really want to move forward with. We're still finalizing the API. And this is where decorators kind of hung out for, for a while. Mm -hmm. Anything right. that is stage two or below is still technically considered something that's not not like totally solid yet, right? You can use it, you can polyfill it. Um, you can, and basically, I'm using polyfill right now, like people understand it, but basically you're adding functionality that mimics that same functionality that you're trying to use. Um, so you can do all the things with it, but be warned, you know, like not, not major grade, like major incrementation, Semver software, something might change on you and you implement something. So don't rely on this, right? So that's right, kind yeah. of the whole, um, that's kind of the whole understanding of like, this is what, this is what we need um, to, to progress the language forward. And then once it hits stage three, once it hits stage three, that's when it's like, okay, we're good on the API. We're going to work on getting this implemented. Um, we need to get editor sign off on it. Uh, we're going to you know finish the tests on it. So forth, so, so on and so forth. So you can see in the third column under acceptance signifies is saying it's complete. We don't need to make any more work on it right now. Um, and let's just get a lot of external feedback. And then stage four is exactly um, is exactly like putting it into the into the overall language. <laughs> so <laughs> I knew who that is. <laughs> are we going to make CSS a thousand percent better? 
I, I hope I, I think it's making a lot of a lot of advancements right now. I mean, parent parent reflected CSS like contains has uh, is uh, there's a concept in CSS called pseudo elements, which are kind of like these bolt on things like, hey, I want to target this div, but I want to see like what kind of state this div is in or I want to see what kind of state this element is or what what is nested in here. I think. You know, CSS has has kind of stayed pretty stagnant for a while, but with with a lot of these, a lot of the I think pushes in what clients want for the browsers uh, is and accessibility constraints as well uh, is, is actually making CSS a lot better. So we'll see. I mean, I, I love it. it it's it's kind of it's an old language in itself. You know, it's something oh, yeah. that it, it's got a a lot of really interesting parts to it, and it's got its own architectural and scalability challenges. So um, it, it really learning it, I think, is, is, a, good, is a good thing. Um, it's always good to have one expert CSS person because, quite frankly, abstractions are good. Um, but much like if you use a JavaScript framework and you don't know vanilla JS, then it's, that could be a problem. So if you use something like Tailwind or you use something like uh, Bootstrap or any other CSS sort of pre-canned uh, pre processors for you or, or, or frameworks, you're only going to get as much out of it as you put into it. So... Um, you know, understanding the fundamentals, I think, is core to like really making it work well for you. And Jack, I would argue that you're using percentages. It's always a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so think about this. There's, there's a lot. Yeah, so you could use. I mean, now percentages and, aren't. They aren't. They're not. They're not as much as. And they're not as valuable as you think. You have vertical width, vertical height. You have max inline block size. You have all different kinds of properties that do exactly like Ken was saying, like that mimic these percentages. So you can. It's starting to tie into the browser more. It's starting to really enhance accessibility requirements where like if you're on a browser and let's say that you have epilepsy and you don't want your contrast to change or you don't want um, things to flash on the screen or not a lot of motion to happen, you can use you can put settings in your browser called reduced motion or um, mm -hmm. low contrast or high contrast. And CSS has the ability to to read all those values, um, and then you know make it make it that much better. But anyway, back to JavaScript. Yeah, <laughs> back I can talk. I can talk for CSS all day. Here he goes, back to goal, <laughs> rolling up CSS plus JavaScript into one component. What are you a Go view developer? <laughs> Thank you, Jack. All right, so yeah, that that's kind of what I wanted to talk about as far as uh, JavaScript goes. I mean, there's there's so much happening. That, I mean, I talked about the process document, and you can see what the TC39 does. And this is from all this is all from all kinds of walks of life. Um, yeah, like I, I think Ken Dodd was Ken Dodds was on the uh, the TC39 for a little bit. He might have been, yeah, he yeah. Been. There's a couple new features coming soon. Um, Temporal is a complete fix of the javascript date primitive so there's a lot of cool stuff in there um, that's just, good because like, i mean dates are notoriously hard to work with in in um in javascript but there's some in, there's some interesting stuff in here too so i would definitely take a look at it cool um new methods on set rather than add and delete there's your decorators ken you know they're out of they're out of stage two and into stage three Excellent. Which is very, very nice. We'll see how those those start to progress here, but yeah, typically typically TypeScript is is some of the first people to really implement a lot of the stage three proposals. 
Um, yeah, there's so much in here. This is all stage three stuff. So, you know, I found um, I was looking for when we had the TC39 committee person come to speak at ETE. It was 2015. Um, and I'll put the link in the show notes here for everybody. Um, but it was Alan Werfsbrock, uh, Mozilla Research Fellow. And he has uh, he, he's like one of the lead people on the spec for a number of years. And that was right when 2015 was when a lot of things were exploding for JavaScript. So I have his paper here, and I bet I could find the video. Anyway, keep going. That's it. So I got for and JavaScript. Okay. But, awesome. Um, did you want to talk about Quick? Do we have time? Yeah, I think we have some time. Why don't we talk a little bit about Quick? So Quick, um, why don't we switch uh, back over to me, I think. Yeah, you can take it. Okay, cool. Uh, let me see here. Do, 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 do. I have to stop. Yeah, I think it's just going to take over your world. There we go. Okay, so, oh, yeah, there it is. That's the Philly ETE. See, we've been doing this for a while. <laughs> um, all right, so, uh, quick, where's my quick link? There it is. So, so quick itself, um, the two people that I see are leading quick, one of them's name is Misko Havery, uh, and we've interviewed him a year, uh, years ago, too, when Angular 2 first came out. He created AngularJS at Google. And then after AngularJS, he realized at some point, like everyone does at some point, my God, my framework, it's going crazy. I need to rewrite it. So it was like three years of rewrites um, or two years. And they completely re reinvented it for ECMAScript 2015 uh, and TypeScript. And they called it Angular 2, which is now what the platform called Angular is. Uh, Google sponsored that for and still sponsoring that uh, for a number of years. Um but then eventually, I guess he, he stepped down from being the, the lead. I remember that happened like 2017, 2016. He stepped down from being the lead on Angular uh, and gave it to someone else uh, on the team, was very talented uh, and was kind of like, uh, you know, like an emeritus, so to speak, on the project. And then I guess at some point he went to Builder.io or created Builder.io with someone from a team uh, called Ionic. Now, Ionic did a lot of mobile-first uh, kind of mobile application web basically embedding a, a browser in a mobile app kind of, um, you know, front ends. So you could deploy uh, kind of like with a phone gap, if you remember phone gap in Cordova, it's the same kind of thing. So Ionic is like a smart framework set for embedding, you know, applications that look like a mobile app inside of a, a, a browser inside of a phone. Uh, and you can also use the same framework in a regular website. So the person, one of the people that was uh, developing there and him, they got together uh, and they created Quick. So it's interesting The if you were to stop working on Angular and put your head up out of uh, what you were working on and look around in 2022, 2023, you would probably think about maybe changing to a component driven approach as opposed to components being part of an overall platform. Uh, and it looks like that's what we have here is it's a, there's a component approach and it's very similar. They use JSX just like React does. Um, so there's, there's JSX syntax for the templates, which I think Drew, Drew you and I were talking about. This is like kind of like the table stakes, as you were saying, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean JSX, it's nothing more than syntactic sugar. So yep. you can plug it into whatever conventions you have in your framework. So like the ubiquity of JSX, and now that I'm looking at it, the the hooks model, sort of like this shareable functionality that you can import in it. Yep. Like, like I said, that's table stakes. I mean, yes, it is. You're looking at these days. And, you know, the other thing they really, their uh, foundational technology way back in the Angular stuff 
uh, I can't believe they're saying way back in that too, because everything moves so quickly, uh, is that they were using RxJS, Reactive JavaScript. And I think at the time, you needed something like that um, before we really got more event-driven, um, you know, and, and kind of uh, the way that we're doing things in React. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't appear to me that they're using RxJS in this, which is, I think, kind of a good thing at this point. I think it, it had its purpose at the time. They have their opinions on reactivity. So if you click on the concepts button. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So there, there's, there's three. There's the first mm -hmm. is reasonable. Um, and then the next was progressive enhancement, which I think everyone can agree with. Mm -hmm. And then reactivity. So this goes really deep. Oh, here it is. Yeah. Yeah. How they envision uh, reactive state. So it's yeah. got a lot of the same sort of like, I'd say declarative conventions as React. Mm -hmm. And when you dive deeper into the framework, it has, you know, obviously some more opinions about how they want to manage the overall like diffing of components and so on and so forth. But I think the most interesting part of this is every single framework is like, okay, we're going to do something cool. And, you know, you saw it with uh, Next.js and Gatsby with server-side rendering, um, yep. but you do that and you still have to hydrate the app. So Quick mm -hmm. is going to take it one step further. They're always improving upon one sort of like sticking point for a um, sticking point for like a framework. Now they have this concept of resumability where they're not, they believe that they don't want to rehydrate the application because they have to build all the same data constructs, right? So what they're talking about is let the server do as much as possible and then just pick right up after that on, on the client. So again, saving more time. But I, I, we're, we're talking like fractions of a second. So it's, yeah. like we're, it's, but I mean, large applications, who knows? I mean, this is all, this stuff is just progressing at the rate of the, the, the speed of light here. Yeah, they're saying basically that this thing scales in terms of it's a large app or small app, it's pretty much instant start. Um, you yeah. know, I guess after the initial chunk of work gets done and the initial hydration perhaps, but that's one thing. The other thing I noticed is that they have this thing called Quick City. They, I, I don't know where they get these names from. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> Right. So Quick City is like their set of APIs that you might use routing, layout, data fetching, things like that. Static site generation, prefetch. Looks like all the things that might move rapidly faster than Quick itself are in a separate project, which is kind of smart and interesting. Uh, the meta framework. So here it goes. So it says uh, we call it a meta framework for Quick. Quick City is to Quick. What Next.js is to React. What Nuxt is to View or SvelteKit to Svelte. Interesting. The framework. Um, yeah, it's the framework on top of the, the component-driven uh, platform of Quick. So it seems like that they've done a lot of good stuff with it. The one thing I'll say about Mishko is he does not just throw something out and ignore it. He like he lives, breathes, and suffers through it and gets it done. Um, and so I think if he's putting his time into this, it'll, it'll see itself through to the finish line for sure. I'm very curious about who Builder.io is, if this is like a consulting firm we created – and you need a platform for it and iterate a platform. But I'd love to find out where this came from, what the, the germination of this uh, system is. Got to monetize somehow, Ken. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's what it's like. It's like uh, the Golden Arches versus the Golden Arcs and uh, coming yeah. to America. It's yeah. like it's React, but it's not React. Because <laughs> uh, if you look at the docs, I believe it's in here, or maybe it's in the main thing. Oh, that's why, because they built their own drag and drop builder. I'll bet that's what it's for. Um, but for Quick itself, there's some comparison in here uh, comparing it to React. And, of course, now we'll be able to find it as I'm scrolling. Go to, just go, go back to the back button a couple times. Oh, was I on it already? Yeah. It doesn't matter. 
Not important. I'll find it and put a post up. You go to the cheat sheet on the left hand side, math. Oh, there it is. Thank you. Quick versus React. Thank you for saving me. <laughs> so there, like if you're looking at like the quick differences between React and Quick. By the way, Quick, one of the things it can do, it can it can fully use and access React technology. So you can use you can use Redux in it, and you can use React components from it, and, and things like that. Use React hooks, I believe. Um, but it has its own flavor. So, and I don't know if I would just wholeheartedly dive into doing a ton of React from Quick because now I've got two frameworks to work with. But um, you know, still, it's an interesting concept. I mean, looks like a nice thing to check out. So we'll we'll take a look at this. We'll keep it on our radar over the next couple of months and see where it's going. Yeah, it hasn't hit major version yet, so it's right. definitely still in development. I know they're they're doing all kinds of stuff in the background. I've been looking at some of the release change logs for it. So yeah. It's it's fascinating though. So they're they're at uh, 16 2. 16, 0. 16 0. 2. 0.16.2. So they're they they got a way to go. But uh you know, I always worry about yet another framework, but you know, well, I mean, I think cool. the thing that's really important here is that yes, it's another framework, but your like declarative UI, declarative like UI isn't changing. Components right. aren't changing. Mm -hmm. It almost looks like you know some of the React conventions of like reusable functionality of with hooks, namespaces aren't changing. Right. Uh, you know, a lot of this I think is really just the sort of the next step or the next improvement on it, and it's not where it was like back in the day or back in the day, like what, three years ago <laughs> where you had like angular and then you had uh view and now you have Svelte. I mean, th these are all kind of, they're, they're here to stay, right? Svelte kit is really so. booming right now. So like there's different ways of doing it, but there's going to be new frameworks on top of what's already there to make it better or faster, or more reliable. Yeah. Right. But there's it's it's important to note that this is all for a very specific use case. Right. Yep. Uh, you can't just shoehorn it into what you have. Like it has to you have to have a valid use case for it. Yeah. It has to fit your, the parameters of what you're doing. And they do do, for example, static site generation and server side rendering, too. So like all the things that you would expect out of something like a Next.js, this is yet another riff on that kind of thing, as well as what they're doing in their technology. Yeah. Um, so definitely want to keep an eye on. I mean, if it's the spiritual successor to Angular. And, you know, because Angular's kind of died out and some of the Angular people look at that and you might find it gets resurrected in terms of a uh, that way of being popular as opposed to Angular itself. You never know where this stuff's headed, yeah. but it's pretty cool looking for sure. All right. Well, thank you for that. Uh, that was a good find this week for sure. And thank you for coming on the show and talking about stuff. Yeah. UI stuff. I like Always stuff. have fun. Yeah. I mean, look, I can I can talk about CSS for hours. Well, you, you know it better than anybody else I know. So I appreciate you coming on and chatting with us, Drew. Happy to. Yep. And looking forward to your talk. So at, at yeah. ETE, that's going to be fun. No yeah. pressure. <laughs> well, no. Yeah, we're going to have some fun with it. We're going to do some cool stuff. Well, you know, get off that UI thread, right? Yeah. <laughs> get yeah. off the event loop, man. Get off it. <laughs> Family with some workers. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you very much, Drew. All right, Ken. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. See you, everyone.